Welcome to the Kingdom Life Church Podcast. We hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Jamie Dixon. For more great content, visit klcmaine.com. Uh, get your Bibles. Go with me to Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven. 37. <clears throat> um, I was in India all week. Um, I left Sunday night, got home Thursday afternoon. I was there for about 48 hours. And um, thank you for those that were praying for me. I had a, um, it was a really... It was a it was a wild trip. Um, I, I connected with uh, Patrick, who just got over there, and uh, Patrick, who's of course from our house, and we sent off to India uh, for the next six months. Uh, Patrick is working with an organization called the SB, SPC, and um, the SPC is not a denomination; it's an organization of pastors. They have thirty thousand members across India. Uh, they have fifteen hundred pastors across the nation, and. Um, the SPC formed because of the persecution. And what many of you don't know is that um, India is one of the most persecuted churches in America, especially right now. The current president, the former presidents, um, of course, you know, we have, you know, uh, beginning from Gandhi on, uh, introduced democracy to India. And when they introduced democracy into India, they included the vote to right and um, accessibility of all faiths in India. Um, well, their most recent president is actually a Hindu who's actually trying to bring India back to uh, before democracy, and he's trying to change. Uh, he's trying to change the laws, and they actually just introduced what's called an anti-Christian law, and it is now illegal to uh, to be of a Christian faith in many of the states across India. And when that that law was introduced, it motivated. Um, radical Hindus to begin to persecute, murder, and behead families and pastors and leaders all across India. Right now, it is uh, one of the most significant locations of martyrdom is a city in a place called Menapur, where they're actually beheading pastors and putting their heads on posts across the city streets to send a message. Um, this is happening. Houses are being burned down and pastors are being scattered all over the nation of India. Um, you will not hear about this in the news. Uh, but it is a radical, radical move of martyrdom and persecution happening in the nation of India. And, um, and the SPC has formed uh, because of the persecution happening across the nation. Uh, be praying. They have a vote in four months. While I was there, I actually met with political leaders. I met with lawyers who are actually fighting right now to protect democracy in the nation of India. But if this, if this uh, pastor, or not pastor, I'm sorry, if this leader wins the next election, there's a very good chance that he will become a dictator in India and actually change the laws and democracy uh, away from democracy into making, Israel, uh, to making India a Hindu nation again. Um, and, and it will become illegal for anyone to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so I was with the SPC who has been formed around pastors that are experiencing persecution. And I met with about between two to four hundred uh, pastors and leaders, and um, and and it was a it was a crazy time. I, I really didn't know what I was going into until I got there, and um, I began to meet with pastors. And um, you know, you're meeting the most lovely, wonderful people, and and you're just like, oh man, you know, great job being a minister in India, you know. But then you start to hear their stories, and I, I met with um, I, I met with with one pastor, and um, he. Uh, Recently was open air preaching and was beaten and got stitches all over his body while preaching the gospel. I met another pastor who, because of the um, their their visas, was able to get into Saudi Arabia, and uh, he was just in prison in Saudi Arabia for months and was celebrating that he got out of Saudi Arabia prison in order to be here for the conference. 
um, you know, met with pastors from Sri Lanka that flew down for it. Um, other pastors that were running from Manipur and their families were still stranded in other states and their houses had been burned down and many of them had been beaten with an inch of, of their life. Uh, another pastor I met had actually been run over by a dump truck and dragged 30 feet and uh, was dying on a table and then an angel touched his feet and he was supernaturally healed. And um, I was with heroes of the faith. And, um, and some, of these, some of these pastors and leaders uh, represent thousands of churches across India. And, um, and so uh, I felt very humbled to be able to, uh, to preach. Um, you know, sometimes it feels very stupid for an American to be teaching the scriptures uh, to these incredible men and women of God. Um, but at the same time, uh, their access to the gospel and as, 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 uh, their access to teaching and training and equipping is so limited um, that uh, I'm teaching on simple things that you guys hear every Sunday. And, uh, and I begin to teach simply on, let's say the first day, I begin to teach on the presence. And I begin to teach about how Jesus tore the veil that we'd have access into eternal fellowship and unbroken communion. And I just began to go after shame. And I just began to go after fellowship with God and the manifest presence. And the one thing, Ezekiel 44, that he is the reward. It's not revival. It's not church planting. It's not miracles. He is the reward. And I just begin to teach on the presence. And I begin to teach on the first thing. And the power of God swept in so strongly that pastors and leaders actually started shaking violently and falling on the floor just while I was teaching. And the Holy Spirit began to move. And, and many pastors had their heads in their hands weeping because they'd never heard this before. And, um, and, and so um, I, I found out later on that there was multiple leaders that as I was just teaching on the presence, they experienced the presence so strongly, their physical bodies started getting healed with nobody touching them. Um, I, prayed, I prayed for one man, and he had elephantitis, um, and his, his legs were, were like the size of tree trunks, and they were swollen and painful. He could barely stand. He could barely walk because it hurt so, so bad, and his, his legs were hard as rocks, and, and so I began to pray with him. And as I began to pray with him, the power of God hit him, and he began to stomp his feet violently on the floor, and he got completely healed. Um, yeah, um, <clears throat> another, another guy was in a car accident. And um, he had one leg six inches shorter than another. And, and with everybody watching, I prayed, and his leg shot out to the, to the length of the other one. He, and all the pain left his whole body. And, um, and uh, one morning, the Lord woke me up with a word saying, hey, tell Joseph um, that while he's here, I'm going to work a miracle in his family. And so um, the name Joseph is not a normal name in India. So I thought, well, that's weird. And so I said, is there a Joseph in the room? And one guy raised his hand. And so I said, Joseph, I heard the Lord said that while you're here, God's going to work a miracle in your family. And the prodigal son's coming back. And, um, and literally that like day, he had gotten word that his nephew had run away from home. And the family was panicking, calling the police, trying to find him. And he was missing. And, um, and so um, the whole family was, was deeply encouraged by that. And um, it, it, it was just a, a powerful time. I, I felt the power and the presence of God stronger than I probably ever have in my life. Um, and just simply ministering and just following the leadership of the Lord. And um, there's moments where the power of God came, came on my body so strong that I was blacking out and couldn't stand. And um, it was, it was, uh, that was weird. Um, but uh, it, it, was, it, was a, it was a really incredible time. And um, what the cool thing is that God so marked these leaders, I talked to Patrick, and Patrick is working with them. I came in to do a conference to help kick off 
his time of going from house to house and in small church to small church to work with these pastors. And uh, he sent me a picture the next day. And every day with multiple meetings every day has now been lined up from this conference for him. And so it really set the course for the next six months. And he's going to continue the work over there. And, um, and I have a feeling, um, it was very cool, uh, the, the final day that I was there, the national secretary of the whole movement was there. And uh, he came up to me in tears and he said, um, all of India has to hear this message. And so he said, would you bring this all over India? And so I'm now working with the national director and their leaders to, to bring training and equipping all over India. So, yeah, so it was a great trip. Um, I say all that to say is get your passport. <laughs> Go to India with me and, uh, and, and you will be forever changed. So, all right, you guys have your Bibles? All right, stand with me one more time. We're going to pray. And we're going we're gonna to run through something this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and we honor your word this morning. Father, I ask you, Lord, that your power and your presence would just come and fill this room right now in Jesus' name. I pray, Lord, that the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Jesus would come. I pray, Lord, that you would open our hearts to fully receive. God, that we would not just hear the words that are spoken, but I ask you, Lord, that you would, uh, Lord, that you would speak revelation to our hearts and unlock hidden mysteries. Lord, that a fire would be ignited through your word, that we'd be like the men on the road to Emmaus. Oh, did our hearts not burn within us as we walked on that road. I pray that you'd open our eyes to see, that you'd open our ears to hear. And I pray, Lord, that you would ignite us and set us on fire today. We honor your word and we thank you for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, let's take a seat. Um, <clears throat> you know, I, as you guys know, we, we've, been in a, uh, we've been in a series. And uh, we, we've been discussing... Um, We've been talking about the fire in the local altar, and our heart is this, is that God would ignite local revivalists. God would ignite you as a local revivalist, to bring a local awakening, just tend the fire on the family altar. To, um, you know, it, it's easy to go to India. I'm telling you right now, let's go to India. You will have the time of your life. You will be bold. You'll preach the gospel. Let's go. You'll experience the presence in unusual ways because you will be out of your environment. Has anybody ever been like out of your environment, encountered God in an unusual way? It's awesome. It's worth it. Do it. How many of you guys know that we, we can't continue to go away to experience unusual presence? We need to learn how to steward the unusual presence in our everyday. Yes. We need to learn how to do it at home. I don't want to go to India and come home with crazy testimonies. I want crazy testimonies in Walmart. And I, I want to I, I see legs grow out six inches in Walmart. I want to I see my neighbor encounter the Holy Spirit. I, I want to I see pastors and revivalists raised up in a local community. And, uh, and, and so my heart is this, is how do we steward a, like a revival-like anointing in the midst of the routine and the mundane? Because it's actually the routine and the mundane that is the biggest factor that's hindering you from stewarding the fire on the altar. It's not the crazy warfare. It's not the wild demonic principalities warring against your gifting and calling. It's not. It's your to-do list. It's Netflix. It's, it's Candy Crush, you know. 
It's boredom. It's apathy. It's mediocrity. It's, it's familiarity when around the people we know and the environment that we know to the God that we know that everything's become normal and routine. And we go, ah, I want to go to India. And I'm saying, like, yeah, let's go do that. Let's go to India. But I want to steward a fire that would become a testimony to India. I want, I want to steward miracles and signs and wonders in the midst of the mundane. And, and so we've just been getting into, last time I talked about navigating discouragements, disappointments, and setbacks, you know, and about how these things come up every single day and how do we navigate and steward our heart in relation to them. They're not going away. Revival does not mean the end of sorrows. It, it means zeal in the midst of the sorrow. And it means devotion in the midst of the sorrow. Um, and, and, and it, it, you know, I, I always talk about how in Revelation 5.5, 5, where it talks about, you know, the scroll of the last will inheritance being cracked open and the seven seals being cracked open. And the angel starts to sing, and you will make us kings and priests and we'll rule and reign with our God. Come on, how many of you guys know in Oakland, Maine, in Waterville, Maine, in Winslow, Fairfield, Farmington, go, we need some kings and priests that will rule and reign with God to arise, right? But then the seals get cracked open. Death and plague and all these wars and all these things go out all over the earth. And I always tell people the seals, those are not the inheritance, but they are the place that reveals the inheritance. And the reality is, is that the sorrows aren't going away. The difficulty, the disappointments, the setbacks, that's real life. But the way that I manage myself in relation to them is where revival is stewarded in my life and a fire is fanned into flame in my life. Amen? And so um, I want to continue this conversation and I, and I want to talk about, um, I, I want to I talk about familiarity right now. And, you know, godliness is shaped in two arenas of behavior and thought, your fellowship with God and your relationship with people. Let's keep it really simple. It's, it's your godliness. When I say godliness, I mean the likeness of God on your life, the fruit of the Holy Spirit, um, your, your um, holiness that has stained your heart and your imagination, um, faith that is immovable, hope that is unshakable, um, joy that is, um, is secure and, and, and strong, godliness, God-likeness that has been imprinted on your life through the person of Jesus Christ. Godliness is shaped in two arenas. It's in your fellowship with God and your relationship with people. Jesus was asked a question, Jesus, what's the number one commandment in Matthew 22, 37? And Jesus said this, he said, uh, to love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your might, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Upon this hinges all, everyone say all. All the law and the prophets. Now, he says, he's asked what? One question. What's the number one commandment? He says, to love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your might. Do not question what the number one thing is. Number one, number two are not interchangeable. He says, the number one thing is to love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your might. And the second is just like it, but it's second. It's not first, it's second, and it's just like it. And he's saying there's one and there's two. You ask for one, I'm giving you two. Why? Because they are inseparable. And he says, number two is just like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. And that love of self is not self-centeredness. That love from self is actually 
um, a love for yourself that has been defined by the love that you have received, that's been shaped by the worth of the cross of Jesus Christ that purchased your life. And you might not find your life very valuable, but the, the Lord Jesus Christ himself opposes your lack of self-worth because he put a price tag on your name in your life, and it was the blood of the one and only Son of God was paid for your life, which means that I don't care what you think about yourself, God himself opposes your lack of self-worth. And he says, you are valuable and worthy of this sacrifice. And it says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. You are the reward of his suffering. That your life would become his full possession. And, and he says, and on this hangs all the law and the prophets. Which means that the entire basis of the Jewish spirituality, the law and the prophets, the foundation of it all, he says, upon this hinges all the law and the prophets, meaning the entirety of your walk with God, all that you are, your entire created purpose and existence is founded on these two commandments. To love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your might. It is love God with everything and love man as you have discovered love in him. And You know, one of the interesting things why this is so important is because the, the Jews obviously held the Ten Commandments in high regard. And you had um, five sins against God and five sins against man. Don't take the Lord's name in vain, but also don't sin against your mother and father, right? And so you had five sins against God and five sins against man. And the Jews actually believed that uh, those two tablets, you know, with the Ten Commandments on them, that Jesus gave the antidote of sin for each tablet. And what he was saying is, is if you love God, you won't sin against God. And if you love man, you won't sin against man. And he goes, on this hinges all the law and the prophets, which meaning that the basis of, of your holiness, of righteousness, is that you would actually learn how to love. You will not sin against those that you've actually learned to love and see the way that he sees. And you will not sin against the Lord if you actually have learned to love him. And so he's invited us into love, and love would protect your fellowship. Now, maturity, character, faith, hope, and love, mental health, emotional health, spiritual health, will all be shaped in the process of fellowship with God and measured in your relationships with people. That it all begins in your fellowship with the Holy Spirit. How many of you know that in fellowship, God is developing your soul? That God is healing the deep wounds of your life. That he's confronting the, the, the lies and the unbeliefs. That he's, he's actually dealing with hopelessness and discouragement in the place of fellowship. And what God is doing in the secret will now be manifested in the, in the, uh, in the natural. And you can measure what God is doing in secret by the way that you relate to people. The work that God does in the secret place will come out in the public place. And it just won't come out in Walmart with no one looking. It's going to come out in your relationship with your spouse. That's why I tell you all the time, healthy people have healthy marriages. Why? Because and we always use the triangle, you know, the, the, the triangle. If, if you've got two people here and God is there, the closer the people get to God, the closer they get to each other. This is this is this is this is the health, the spiritual maturity and health is that everything that he does in secret will be measured in my relationships with people because in Matthew twenty two thirty seven this is what Jesus told us is the foundation to spiritual maturity. Now I've spent a lot of time on this and I, I apologize. Um, 
with, with, with these two arenas, there's an enemy to your advancement and to your growth. It's quiet. It blends in. It's not easily recognized. And that is familiarity. Familiarity with God looks like apathy and boredom. And your familiarity with man looks like cynicism and comparison. Familiarity with God looks like apathy and boredom. Familiarity with man looks like cynicism, cynicism and comparison. I, I want to I break these down really quick. Are you guys all right? I want to break these down really quick. About, I want to break down familiarity with God and familiarity with man. In Ephesians 4, 17 it says, now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Due to their hardness of hearts, they've become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greed, and practice of every kind of impurity. I think it's important to understand Ephesians 4, 17, this passage is actually not about sin. Sin became the byproduct of the real issue. What was the real issue? Calloused hearts. Now, do I have any, anybody that works with their hands or any guitar players? How does a callus get created? Routine, routine use. How many of you guys know that if you play the guitar once, it hurts? But we're not talking about a pain. We're talking about a callus. And that callus is created by the continual routine of use. And at some point, the more that you use it, your body will create a resistance to the pain that it causes. <clears throat> Look at this cross-reference, Romans 1.20. Now this is about how sin kind of comes into our lives and becomes a bondage. It says, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived. Ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. The moment that we see his glory, it's in everything. It's all around, so there's no excuse that you can't see his glory. It's in everything. It's in, the, it's in a baby's cry. It's in, the, it's in the sunrise and the sunset. It's in the... God holding back the waves and bringing in the tides. It's, it's in the, the, the marriage between husband and wife. There is glory all around us. You're, there was no excuse. You can't see it. He goes, but for a people, they knew God, but they didn't honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man. And all of a sudden they go, oh man, it's, you know, we take the things that represent God and we go, eh, he's out of the question. It's just science or it's just this or it's just this. And we diminish all of his glory to natural things. We create idols out of, you know, there's so many things in his presence that brings joy. But we start replacing all the things that were created to bring joy. And we start exchanging it for other things. You know, maybe it's. Uh, may, maybe it's substances or maybe it's things that we watch or whatever it is. And we start going down these like carnal roots of exchanging what God created. And we start going after things that man created. And it goes, in, and, uh, and therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity. Familiarity with God is to say he is holy. 
but then behave as if he is common. Familiarity with God is to call him holy, and we come up here and we just sing, yeah, holy. And we sing that song, and we're like, man, I love Sundays, baby. Holy. And then we just like live like hell the rest of the week. And I'm not here to just talk about, you know, I'm not here to go like hypocrite. No, no, no. I don't actually believe that's hip, uh, hypocrisy. I know that we've always pointed our finger. I actually think that this moment on Sunday where you're worshiping is the most genuine core self that you'll ever be. And the rest of the week is a hypocrisy where you actually start going and living and fulfilling your flesh with other things. This isn't hypocrisy. That's the hypocrisy of our lives. And the familiarity with God say that he's holy but behave as if he's common. We talk and speak of the gospel with such routine that we become familiar with his story. And out of boredom and apathy, we emotionally disengage his power. If I said, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. You go, mm, brother, John 3, 16. That's a good one. And I go, a good one? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Friends, we should be on our faces every time. Why? Because it should be like sandpaper to the callus. Just ripping off the hardness of our hearts saying, he so loved me. It's wild how in like Western Christianity, the cross has lost so much effective power over our hearts. Because we've so routinely heard his story that we've actually disengaged the power of it. You were a sinner destined to hell. And he robbed hell of your life. And he purchased you by a price, a ransom price. The blood of his only son. For a good man, nobody would die. But even in your sin, when you were still a sinner, Christ died for the ungodly. Man, I could go down the line. He did it for you. And that power has to continue to engage our hearts just as it did in the first day. Familiarity is at war. And it produces apathy in your life. Why? Because it's created a callous heart that's darkened and foolish. And it's resisted the daily fear of the Lord and devotion to his presence. That we've lost all sight of the holiness of God. And we've disengaged the power of the story and what the work that he's done in our life. I can get up here and talk about stories of what's helping in India. And we're just disengaged, you know, like golf clap. So nice. Why? Because we've heard this story before. We've become calloused. Are you hearing me? <clears throat> Familiarity with God is, is, is robbing us of our fervent zeal for his presence. Our daily stewardship of, of his presence in our life. Familiarity with man you know, we know the story in, in Matthew chapter 13, you know, where Jesus goes and he, and, he, and he ministers, you know, to his hometown. And they ask the question, is this not uh, Jesus, the man that lived with us, the carpenter's son? His mother's name is Mary. Aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, Judas? Aren't all of his sisters with us? Where did this, this man get all this power? And then they took offense. And Jesus did not do many miracles in his hometown. Familiarity with man looks like awareness of faults in comparison to the limitations of our lives. 
in an attempt to lower our expectations of their character and calling. Familiarity with man looks like an attempt to level the playing field of fear that your greatness will cause me to feel inadequate. Now, I am so hyper aware of my faults and failures that I'm pretty sure you have them too. And if I'm pretty sure you have them too, I suspect that in the moments that you feel you look great, you behave in a way that, that is uh, challenging to me, where you serve greater than I serve, you lead greater than I lead, you love more than I love. I could actually look at your greatness that makes me feel inadequate and exposes the faults of my life, and I can assume that this isn't all that real. And you know what? You're super anointed, but there's a, probably a lot of crap in that closet, and so we're the same. And the reality is, is that th- like comparison is at war with honor. And Jesus said an, a, a prophet is without honor in his hometown. And so when we actually become familiar with each other and we become aware of each other's faults, we, we will not see each other beyond our faults, but we will actually hold each other accountable to our faults, level the playing field so that nobody is able to advance beyond me. Does this make sense? This is really important because if you honor the prophet, you receive the reward of the prophet. Your breakthrough is my breakthrough. I need you to go further than me and I actually have to lay down my life so I can become a stepping stone to your greatness. Why? Because the fruit and the reward of your life will probably unlock the fruit and the reward of my life. And if you get breakthrough, I get breakthrough. I need you to get a breakthrough, but you can't get a breakthrough in an environment that doesn't honor what's on your life and sees beyond your faults. You need a group of people championing you beyond your lack and beyond your inadequacy and when you forget who you are so there's a group of people that remind you of who you are and call you back into your identity this is what we call a culture of honor when we're actually fighting for the honor that's on your life and we're propelling you towards that not trying to lower you down become acquainted with your faults remind you of your faults so that you don't run beyond them does that make sense um our familiarity and depreciate expectations on each other is creating a calling prisons. And, and, uh, and the reality is Jesus couldn't perform any miracle, miracles in the culture of his hometown. How is familiarity in the church impacting you? If Jesus couldn't perform miracles there, how is it affecting you? We have to root familiarity out of our lives. I'm going to end quickly. Are you guys okay? How, how do we root this stuff out of our lives? How do we break the pattern? Go with me to um, Philippians 2, verse 1. <clears throat> how do we destroy familiarity in both arenas of our life, with God and man? Philippians 2, 1. If there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from, from Love any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only on his own interest, but also the interests of others. Having this mind among yourselves, which is Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men 
and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every other name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. How do we break familiar in our lives? Number one, praise in celebration. We have to become a joyful, celebrating church. I mean, the, the weird cricket noises in church is so awkward. It's so unnatural. Like you go into a concert or a stadium and people are screaming their heads off and you go, this feels right. You come into church, the church of the firstborn son. The church of the slain lamb and the roaring lion. You come into the church of this living manifest presence and crickets where the sick are being healed, the dead are being raised, and demons are being cast out of people, and the living gospel of eternity is being preached and crickets? If that's not the effect of religion, I don't know what is. That is, that is a mockery of the gospel of Jesus Christ and deserves the greatest form of celebration the world has ever seen. And we have to become a celebratory people. That when, 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 when Aunt Susie gets her headache healed, we erupt with joy. And when, when, when John has his leg grow back from a stub, we erupt with joy. It doesn't matter. When miracle power shows up in the room, the church erupts with joy. Why? Because we are living in the fear and the holiness of God. And that his presence deserves an eruption of joy and celebration. Praise and celebration is like sandpaper to callous. It's a brace of your familiarity. And sometimes it leads to repentance, and repentance leads to a softened heart. With God, praise destroys familiarity. In Romans, it says that their, um, their hearts became foolish and darkened and they, uh, because they stopped giving thanks. The moment they stopped acknowledging God as God, their hearts became callous to the story and to the presence of God. We have to be a people that are constantly giving thanks. Why? Because it will defend your heart from a calloused uh, posture. Praise awakens our soul. It opens your eyes to the majesty and the holiness of God. God dwells inside. It makes, uh, it makes us in his likeness. And it tears the veil of separation. Um, we, we need the abrasive realization of his majesty, sovereignty, and power. And praise will cause us to look at him until we become what we behold. With man, celebration is a kill shot to cynicism. If we can celebrate who people are without tripping over who they are not, we will be able to honor who they were created to be. Keeping our hearts from sinning against them, binding our tongue from gossip and slander, and we will champion and empower everyone around us to advance fully into their calling. I wonder what would happen in, in place of gossip. I wonder if Christians chose to prophesy in private without you looking. You're not around. And John and I are sitting over coffee, right? And we're talking about you. And we go, did you hear about Tim? What did you hear about Tim? I heard that Tim's called to the nations. And I heard that Tim is going to prophesy over nations. And I heard that Tim carries an extraordinary power of God in his life. And I think God's about to open up doors for him into the nations. 
Now, what would that do to a church culture? Instead of, did you see what he posted yesterday? I heard he's going to vote for. Right? <laughs> I'm not picking a side on that gossip because I don't want. <laughs> he's going to vote for Nader. <clears throat> what would happen if gossip was replaced with prophecy? What would happen if slander was, was replaced with, with, with joy and celebration over your life? What if, what, if, what if suspicion was replaced with testimony? What if we created a culture of honor that surrounded your life and unlocked the call of God on your life? That you could thrive in this environment. I bet you wouldn't be too afraid to confess sin. I bet you wouldn't be too intimidated to actually be rebuked. You wouldn't actually be too intimidated to actually get vulnerable. Why? Because it's been proven over and over and over again that these people champion what's on their life and they know who you are even when you don't. That is the environment we have to create. We have to break familiarity so that when Robert comes up to me and he prophesies over my life, I feel like the prophet Elijah is prophesying over me, not a man that I'm fully aware of his faults. And the words that he gives, I'm not going, ah, maybe. Right, bro? When we get a word for each other, man, may it be like fresh bread to me. Why? Because, man, I see God on your life. And lastly, if you want, um, do, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count yourselves more significant than others. Do not count yourselves more significant than yourselves or whatever. Um, you get it. We have to root out comparison and competition from our heart. Your neighbor's promotion is not your setback. Our motivation has to move past personal advancement, selfish gain, and into advancement and gains of the ones around us. When we commit ourselves to serving the vision of the lives around me, it breaks familiarity and comparison. It says, have this mind among you, which is also in Jesus, who though was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You know, one of the, one of the dangers of a church culture that we're creating here in KLC um, is one that emphasizes the power the role and the responsibility of believers. There's pitfalls to that. Bold believers who know who they are are dangerous. Not only to hell, but also to you. <laughs> A church culture that champions giftings, callings, and mission is that we will see our greatness and calling as God's responsibility to fulfill. But our life mission is not to receive from God, it's to pour out at his feet. The problem with the missional church is that we will see that the mission is the highest call, but the mission is not the highest call. Revival is not the highest call. Actually, pouring my oil at the feet of Jesus is the highest call. Ministering to the heart of God is the highest call. Being your leader is not the highest call, but being your servant is. And, and like healing your body is not my highest call, 
but loving you the way the Father loves you is my highest call. And so one of the things that we have to do is we have to learn that if we would become servants of each other, it will break familiarity because in order to serve you, I have to see the worth of your life and champion it. And this is why we have to take the posture of servants to lay down our lives willingly, to empty them at the feet of Jesus in worship. I'm not here to get anything from him. I am here to empty myself at his feet. I am not here to get a fresh fuel so I get through the week. I am here to exalt his name, build him a throne so that he would be glorified in central Maine. I wanna be a servant which will break my familiarity with him and I wanna be a servant to you which will break my familiarity with you. Familiarity is at war with your zeal and we have to learn actually how to wage war back on familiarity. Why don't you guys stand with me?